Hi, it's Mike. Sometimes you hear podcasters say, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Does it? I think it might. Why not try it? Please follow us and do recommend the show to others. And if you can, leave a review in your own mind, in your own hearts, or especially on one of those big websites that keeps the reviews and shows them to the rest of the public. Hello, it's Saturday. That's a helpful calendar reminder from me. And it's also a show just orienting you as you try to navigate reality. But that means this is the Saturday show where we give you one of the best from the vaults and one of the best from the week. The most discussed interview or segment, actually, not an interview this week, discussed on our Reddit page was on Monday when I talked about the charges brought against Daniel Penny, the former Marine who choked to death, that is sometimes called strangled, the former Michael Jackson impressionist and homeless individual, Jordan Neely. Jordan had his funeral on Friday, led to a lot of discussion. Uh, I will play that for you and we could continue on with the discussion. But I'm also going to play an interview I did in 2019 with the economist Derek Hamilton. Hamilton from Ohio State University was the leading intellectual light behind the idea of baby bonds. Now, the state of Connecticut passed baby bonds, voted them into law a couple years ago, and yet no babies in Connecticut got their bonds. There was a funding issue. But this week, baby bonds for all little babies in Connecticut. So good afternoon, everyone. Um, I am thrilled uh, to be here today to announce that through months of collaboration and a lot of creativity, our first in the nation initiative to invest directly in Connecticut kids is closer to becoming a reality. Uh, we have reached a, an agreement regarding funding, uh, which will ultimately save taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars and make sure that we fully fund the baby bond program up front. Yes, nutmeggers, you get your baby bonds. And to hear how that idea started, here's my talk with Derek Hamilton. Professor Derek Hamilton is the executive director of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University, or as they say it there, the Ohio State University. It'd be terrible to have him be the professor at just an Ohio State University. I first heard of Derek Hamilton when Beto O'Rourke was being interviewed. Hey, Beto, what are you reading? And he said, the work of Derek Hamilton, this in economics terms might be known as signaling. Let's find out. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Did you know Beto was reading your stuff? You know, I did. I, well, someone who knows him asked me for anything that I've been writing that might be of interest. And uh, to my surprise, he elevated my work of, amongst the top of things that he's reading. But yeah. I, I certainly didn't know he was going to make that announcement. See, I've seen your work show up, not in the person of Beto O'Rourke, but Cory Booker. A number of Democratic candidates have championed some of your big ideas, but it seems like there is a big overlap between your ideas about a jobs guarantee and your ideas about baby bonds, and baby bonds especially are a Cory Booker's signature issue. Yes, that that's certainly true. Um, I think we are at a moment when many of the Democratic candidates are looking for big, bold policies to really break up the rut of our increasing inequality. 
Okay, so the stuff that you study that is of interest to me, I think I and most of my listeners would understand, uh, as terrible as this is, why it is. And it's because to accumulate wealth, you have to have assets and income. And for much of American society, blacks were either denied that or there were huge barriers, especially as compared to whites. But what else? What else is going on beyond the pretty obvious point that a people can't accumulate wealth if they are never allowed to earn in the first place? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't even attach as much credence to the role that income plays in comparison to endowment to begin with or receipt of an inheritance or some transfer at a key point in one's life. Income is obviously important, um, and income can impact one's wealth, especially if your income is high enough to permit you to save a great deal. Um, but the vast majority of Americans uh, use their income for consumption, most of the savings that comes from uh, the typical American is being in a vehicle that will passively accumulate over one's life. And that could be a mortgage that, uh, where the home appreciates or having the automatic savings that comes about from paying down debt as opposed to paying a landlord for rent or having a job that, ac- that accumulates retirement savings over time. You know, basically the point I'm trying to make is that Few Americans, a few, a small share of Americans actually save out of their incomes without having some vehicle for savings. So I under, I have also read you and others talking about, and this is quite true in American history, things like redlining and, and housing discrimination, but also factors like if the same people bought the same priced home in many neighborhoods 30 years ago, just uh, the black person buying in the black neighborhood will get much less of an increase than the white person buying in the white neighborhood. Everything I've said is true? That's a great point. I mean, in addition to historical barriers that were structurally put in place and state-sanctioned, that's the key word, state-sanctioned, we also have contemporary issues, which is lending discrimination and real estate discrimination, as well as uh, overall environment where homes where you have a predominantly black neighborhood do not appreciate to the same extent as homes that aren't in a predominantly black neighborhood. So here's what I wanted to ask you. If I'm, I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying about let's not overemphasize how much home ownership has been a driver. Let's acknowledge that it also reflects wealth, as you just said. For years, economists of goodwill who are quite upset by discrimination, want to remedy it. African-American economists have said, well, you know what the solution is? Since home ownership is such a huge driver, what we should do is get more black people into homes and furthermore do things like eliminate redlining and housing discrimination and all the other factors by which the homes in black neighborhoods wouldn't appreciate as much. Now, were they just wrong? Did they get something wrong? Is it not enough? Why is that solution to the problem either inadequate or not a solution at all? It's a non-nuanced solution that really is not addressing the real barrier. Now, of course, I'm for uh, eliminating discrimination in home ownership right. and providing... So, so we uniformly agree that those things are bad. Uh, but underneath home ownership in the first place is that capital endowment. And what I'm arguing for is that I'm all for anybody who chooses to buy a home as their pathway to generate their wealth, go right ahead. I own a home, so, you know, I'd be a hypocrite to say anything otherwise. But rather than emphasizing the home aspect of it, 
it is underneath that a capital endowment that gives people agency. Right, right. So the policy, so the policy people who are saying, ah, home ownership is the key. You're saying you got to go two steps ahead to get to the point where there can be home ownership. That's exactly what I'm saying. It also puts forth a narrative that's not quite accurate because if it's just home ownership, then why don't we just put people into home ownership? And then as, as we've been pointing out, it's not just home ownership. It's that capital endowment also. And then, you know, the other point is that ha- even if you have that capital endowment, doesn't necessarily address the fact that you don't have access to the same appreciation for homes that others might due to various structural factors. Okay, pitch me on the baby bonds. <laughs> pitch you on the baby bonds. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, what is the source of inequality? As I've just been describing, some individuals, when they are a young adult, have access to some transfer, some endowment that affords them an asset that will passively appreciate over their lifetime. I've cited to you that very few Americans engage in outright savings without one of those vehicles of, of savings out of their income. So if that's the source of inequality, having that endowment to put you in that passive vehicle, why don't we give everyone as a birthright an opportunity so that they can accumulate assets and have that economic security just by simply being being born in America or, or being part of our society, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we, we can use terminology like a stakeholder society. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that if, if the source of inequality is not really based on whether you study hard, work hard, but mostly driven by the fact that uh, if you don't have access to capital, then you're locked out of capital accumulation, why don't we provide everybody with capital? Now, of course, capital is not enough. Just having capital doesn't ensure you're going to have wealth throughout your life. But one thing's for sure, not having capital locks in inequality unless you're lucky. All right. So how much and who would get it and who would pay for it? Okay, so how much? The mean baby bond, and by the way, it's not quite a bond. It's more like a trust. Mm-hmm. So it would be more accurately called baby trust. But uh, alliteration. I like the alliteration, ba- yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so the, the mean account would be about $25,000. And the most wealthy families, if you're born into the most, wealth, the most wealthy family, you would get part of the social bond and receive something more nominal, uh, maybe $500. I think Cory Booker sets it at $1,000 for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but if you're from one of the most, from the poorest family, then you can get upwards to $50,000, fifty dollars to $60,000 that when you become a young adult, you can use that money to either part- purchase a home with a down payment, finance an education, start a business, or uh, according to the Booker plan, be able to roll it over in a retirement account until you're ready to use it. So how much would it cost? It would cost about $100 billion. There are about 4 million babies born in the U.S. per year. So uh, it would cost upwards to, say, $100 billion, um, and that's ignoring the administrative costs, which uh, would not account for that much more. So let's put that $100 billion in context. Right now, we spend over $500 billion promoting asset development of of Americans. Things like capital gains reductions and tax rates, uh, things like deductions from mortgage interests. The problem isn't that we promote assets in America. It's to whom that asset-promoting budget goes to. 
very much of it goes to those at the top end of the distribution. The bottom 60% of earners receive about 5% of that entire endowment, whereas the top, I believe it's top 10%, receives over 60% of that endowment. So if we were to take that $500-plus billion budget, that's just one example by which we could certainly afford to seed these accounts, which, by the way, we wouldn't have to distribute. In other words, the trust would have time to accumulate resources over time until the child actually reaches adulthood. So this would be a more progressive way to, f- to promote asset development as well as a, a fairer way for, for Americans. Now, tell me about the jobs guarantee, because I, to me, the baby bond idea is interesting. But one reason is that the price tag, you sold me on the price tag. It's relatively modest. Whereas I've been looking at the price tag for the jobs guarantee, it seems to be about half a trillion dollars. But sell me on the idea and why it's worth it. All right. So shifting gears to the federal job guarantee. Um, the federal job guarantee is designed to eliminate involuntary unemployment altogether, The federal job guarantee is designed to eliminate the oxymoronic statement of working poverty. And then it also empowers workers where they are by removing the threat of unemployment. But your question was about the price tag. Um, So the price tag of uh, upwards to, in in a good economy, $500 billion. In a bad economy, probably talking about more, more in the level of $700 billion. So one, I think that price tag is certainly worth it. If we think about all our anti-poverty programs together, they amount to about $700 billion. So of course, we would have reductions in cost of those programs if we had a federal job guarantee. Two, it will stimulate the economy. It'll stimulate aggregate demand, obviously by putting more income into people's hands, um, but also facilitating a greater public infrastructure in America. We could use the jobs to reimagine the type of society that we want. We could green our economy. So there are lots of benefits associated with the productive work that would be done. And then there are also other costs that we should think about. Think of the cost of unemployment that plagues society. Think about the psychological damage that's done to individuals that desire to work but can't work. Think about the spillover effects on their families and and their communities. Think about incarceration that results from lack of jobs. And then also think about the benefits associated with that person who has a job but frankly has no agency because of that threat of being unemployed. And as we move into a society where we have these non-compete agreements, where workers that work in fast food industries, if they lose their job, they can't so easily go get another fast food job. Um, these are costs that a federal job guarantee would be able to address. Do you, have you studied and do you think or don't you think, to phrase it in the rhetorical, that if people are literally guaranteed a job, it won't have at least some measurable income on the quality of the work they put in? Will it have some, me- if they're guaranteed a job, so which work are we talking about? Those that are currently I'm talking about. Those- I'm talking about if you can't be fired, maybe you don't work as hard or as well. Yeah, Well, the notion of can't be fired, uh, that might be – so we would talk about a right to work, but you don't have a right to be disruptive at work, slack at work. In other words, you can be removed from work. You can be suspended. I'm not talking about a scenario where there's no discipline that can be enforced on workers. Um, But nonetheless, I guess you're you're, you're making a case that will that create some disincentives to engage in, in, in work? 
if there is an anecdotal or some cases of individuals that try to game the system, there is no perfect policy, if I'm honest. Uh, yeah. And that is a level and a bar that I don't think is fair because, frankly, we could find that we could find some slack or some inefficiency in anything we do. But I don't think the source of poverty is because people choose to try to um, game the system and desire not to work. I fundamentally believe in people. I fundamentally call me naive, pie in the sky. Um, I fundamentally believe that if you provide the right pathways to people and the right structures, that people will achieve and be successful and be their best self. So that that is one of the values that I start with, and that's what I'm betting on. Derek Hamilton is currently the executive director of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. If you haven't gleaned it from this conversation, his ideas are getting out there, germinating the minds of many a Democratic candidate. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. I appreciate this opportunity. It was a fun conversation. And now the spiel. Daniel Penny is the 24-year-old former Marine who has been charged with manslaughter in the death of Jordan Neely. Neely, a homeless man, entered Penny's subway car, acted hostile and erratic towards passengers, informing them he was hungry, thirsty, and, quote, ready to die. Penny applied a chokehold, but for too long or too carelessly, resulting in Neely's death. Is Penny guilty of a crime? That is for the criminal justice process to determine. Sorry if that sounds wishy-washy, but in today's polarized political and media environment, it's actually a strong rebuke, an unusual rebuke to almost all the coverage and chatter about this case as portrayed in the media. Interpersonally, people are having very fine conversations about it. Is it abundantly clear that Daniel Penny did something wrong? Was it criminal? Again, These are the questions for the courts, the jury, the process to decide. Was it foreseeable? That will be a factor in the decision. Was it understandable? In fact, the entire case, the entire charge of second-degree manslaughter depends on a prosecutor proving Penny knew the chokehold could kill. It's a hard case. It's a hard case to decide whether to even bring the case, and I say that humbly as someone who's not privy to all the evidence. You know who else isn't privy to all the evidence? Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez, who immediately weighed in, calling it a murder, adding on Twitter a reference to the Stanford swimmer whose light sentence led to a recall of a California judge, quote, watching media give the Brock Turner treatment for the killing of a homeless man has been nauseating. A person having a record does not excuse killing them, neither does being poor, sick, or homeless. Well, Brock Turner did commit sexual assault, The outrage over him was after a jury trial and after sentencing. Rightly or wrongly, there was at least a process. We know the facts. We understand and allowed the facts to be unearthed because of the process. Here, AOC engages in no process, just a smear and a severe mischaracterization of why anyone would possibly argue that Daniel Penny isn't a murderer. Remember, she called it a murder. The DA didn't even charge murder. There's no way that he could possibly prove murder. The issue is Daniel Penny's state of mind as regards his safety in the moment, the safety of fellow passengers, and also his understanding of the chokehold he was applying or misimplying, which I'm ready to concede 
after I hear the evidence. AOC was far from the only public figure to come in with a red-hot tongue of opinion to clang against a really ambivalent anvil. Here was Greg Gutfeld on Fox. You don't know how you would react, right? And everybody has to face the fact that this could happen to them. You could be in this, in this Marine's shoes. Yeah. And you know what? Those shoes right now belong to a hero. A hero? He killed a guy on the subway. It doesn't make him necessarily a villain. Doesn't make him a criminal. That's what the process is for. But if you take the fact that he perceived a danger, administered a chokehold, that chokehold resulted in a homicide, none of that adds up to heroism. I mean, if you ask me, do we want more heroes in society? I would say yes. If you ask me, do we want more citizens strangling their fellow citizens on subways? I would certainly say no. But my point isn't that there are two extreme sides. My point is that there seems to be only two sides elevated, when in fact, I have had dozens, maybe even a hundred conversations with New Yorkers of all ilk. I even have talked to random strangers on the subway about this, and I have elicited opinions, 95% of which contain words like shame, tragedy, Sad, sad for both of them, hard to judge. And yet, here's how NBC News conveys the mood of the city. New Yorkers are split, some calling him a heartless vigilante, others say he is a hero. But most are saying neither of those things. All should be withholding opinions, but it is hard. It's made harder still when the Daily News is emoting for Jordan Neely, when the New York Post is practically running Daniel Penny's fundraiser, and when the New York Times is commissioning articles like this one by Roxanne Gay, making people uncomfortable can now get you killed. Uncomfortable? Yeah, that's what Gay meant to argue as she writes, Jordan Neely, a Michael Jackson impersonator experiencing homelessness, was yelling and according to some subway riders acting aggressively on an F train in New York City. Was he making people uncomfortable? I'm sure he was. The people in that subway car prioritized their own discomfort and anxiety over Mr. Neely's distress. This is propaganda which is when the plain facts of a situation are twisted and misrepresented to serve a purpose other than delivering a reasonable assessment of a situation. The severely mentally ill homeless man screaming on the subway who announced he was ready to die was doing more than causing discomfort. But I do salute Gay for using the active voice as opposed to the experiencing homelessness phrase. I'm sure she was tempted to write that the angry screaming man was causing discomfort to be felt. Matt Gates told the story of the subway choking in his propagandistic style on his podcast, asking listeners if they could be brave enough to, quote, do your duty as a free American. Marine U.S. Patriot Daniel Penny probably asked himself similar questions, and he decided to act. Gates went on to describe the aftermath of that action. Daniel is even on video providing due care and releasing this person from the hold, even trying to wake him up after he was subdued. Killed. Not subdued, Congressman. The word you're looking for is killed. AOC on the left, Gates on the right, Gay in the New York Times, Gutfeld on Fox, all making the same process mistake to come to wildly different conclusions. My personal journey in this matter was to immediately say that it's hard to ascertain Penny's culpability, 
When I was exposed to the opinion of AOC and others on the left, that's, I guess, how my Twitter feed is oriented. Those are the newspapers I subscribe to. I immediately reacted. I said, this is ridiculous, but I caught myself. And I said, don't overreact to obviously unfair characterizations. Don't be so revolted by propaganda that you go too far in the other direction. I mean, my God, Roxanne Gay's description was such an obvious mischaracterization. It would be tempting to then say, you know what? We got to reject every conclusion that stems from that line of thinking. So now all of a sudden we're on team Gutfeld. I mean, also, maybe there's someone like me or someone who feels sorry for Neely, as by the way, we all should, or who is also like me, uncomfortable with a world of even honorably discharged former Marines meeting out fatal justice on mass transit. And maybe that person first heard Gates or Gutfeld overstate their side's case. Well, that person should also guard against saying, well, then Daniel Penny certainly is innocent of all crimes. But it is tempting. It is tempting to think that. That's how polarization works. That's how intensity of opinion works. To to look at Gates and Gutfeld, perhaps two characters who aren't looked upon kindly by the average gist listener, and say, for those guys to make such extreme arguments in such facile ways, well, that must mean the entirety of their point, i.e. the guiltlessness of Daniel Penny, well, that must be worthless. It may seem like the spiel is falling into that very unsatisfying trap of the centrist, the mushy middle. I'm not saying the truth must be somewhere in between. I'm saying the truth can be anywhere on the spectrum from manslaughter to, well, if not hero, to fully exonerated and properly exonerated. We don't know. They don't know. And the outlets that pay them to bray on and to describe this very nuanced and hard to parse occurrence is very simple and a battle of good versus evil. They're all doing us a disservice. So I say, let's use this tragedy to retain our humanity and our dignity by engaging in discernment. And that's it. For this, the Saturday show, Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer, and I'll talk to you on Monday.